0: Welcome to our Ellie Mae Open House. Instead of examining hardwood floors, closet space, and kitchen layouts, we're taking you on a tour of what's happening across today's mortgage industry. During each episode, we'll hear from industry leaders and subject matter experts to give us an inside look into a hot topic, cutting edge technology, or new trend that can help accelerate your digital journey. Thank you for joining us. Come on in.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ellie Mae Open House. My name is Alyssa Grover and I'm a Senior Director for Product Marketing here at LMA, now Ice Mortgage Technology. Joining me today is Mark Ladd, who's the Vice President of Regulatory and Industry Affairs for Simplifile and also part of Ice Mortgage Technology. We're going to talk about the regulatory environment in the mortgage industry today. We're going to talk a little bit about legislation, what may be short-term, what's here to stay, and maybe a little look ahead at the potential changes in industry post-election and the new administration. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Great to talk with you again, and I've been looking forward to chatting with you today.
0: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Well, first, if you could, please tell our listeners a little bit about your background in the mortgage industry, your experience, and how long you've been with Simplify, and what you're charged with.
0: My participation in the mortgage industry actually began back in uh, 1994 when I was appointed the Racine County Register of Deeds, and that's actually an elected position, but there was a vacancy in that position, and I was appointed by the governor. Served in that role for just about, just short of 11 years, and that was really my introduction into the mortgage industry. So I started uh, at the local level and then went back into the private sector and was a consultant to the property records industry Association Pria, the National Trade Association for the county recorders and where the e-recording standards uh, you know devolve from um, and then also several of the land records management vendors uh, i consulted with as well and and did that for that was about eight years that I was doing the consulting thing. Uh, and then in April of 2011, uh, I joined the management team at Simplify. The job title, as you noted, is uh, Vice President of Regulatory and Industry Affairs, which means all the things that nobody else in the company wanted to deal with. <laughs> uh, and and actually, you know, Simplifile's legacy business was e-recording, so. Uh, very heavy emphasis on state and local government and and county government, especially. And it's amazing in the e-recording world, the county board can make a decision and it can rattle all the way up and reverberate all the way up through the lending and mortgage production process. We were very, very well aware of that. Uh, But then as Simplify was looking at its business, while other people thought of us as an e-recording company, we thought about ourselves as a document and data exchange platform. And so we were looking at how we could expand our business and this little federal regulation known as TRID, <laughs> uh, the Truth in Lending and Integrated Disclosures r- requirements from the CFPB rolled out. And that provided a regulatory driver for Simplify to expand our network and now, rather than the communication and data and document exchange that we provided being between the county and the settlement agent, now we could help the settlement agent and the lender collaborate on the integrated disclosures and making sure that we were that they were TRID compliant. And so I suddenly needed to be versed in those types of, of issues. And we started working on you know, legislation that was federal in scope. And then now, with ICE acquiring the uh, the Simplify business almost a couple of years ago now, Congress, regulators, think tanks, state and local government is still all in play. So it's a it's a really exciting time for me personally, uh, and it's been an interesting opportunity to just grow and expand as Simplify's business continues to grow and expand, and as the mortgage industry wrestles with an ever evolving regulatory environment. Twenty six years. In the industry, wow, that's a long time, uh, but never, never a dull moment—that's for sure. So uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what lies ahead for us as we get ready to turn the page on 2020 and move into 2021.
1: Oh, thanks for that, Mark. So now, since you uh, have your finger on the pulse of what's going on, let's let's talk about the regulatory environment in the industry today. What has evolved? What legislation has been put into place, and what's here to stay?
0: Wow, uh, there are so many things, you know, going on. I, and when I think about it, prior to COVID, how many of us even knew what an executive order was? I mean, other than the fact that we know that the president uh, issues executive orders on day one, um, but the, the the proliferation of executive orders coming out of governor's offices. And I, I can remember back when these orders were first coming out, there were a number of us that were concerned about possible lapses in these orders. You know, what, what happens when they expire 28 days from now or 30 days from now? And we were all thinking that COVID and all of this stuff would be really, really temporary. But now we have to actually remind ourselves that these executive orders aren't permanent legislation and that they could change when they lapse or when the state Supreme Court says that they're not constitutional. And so I think from a regulatory point of view, we have to remember that a lot of our current environment is temporary and that... We have to be careful about providing service to our customers right now and meeting the needs of, of our customers and continuing to move forward with business right now. But we, we can't build a long-term business model on that because, as, as we've already seen in a couple of of incidences where the permanent legislation that got adopted was different than the temporary executive order, or we may not even know what the permanent legislation is because it hasn't been introduced yet. So that's a really interesting challenge uh, that, that we are faced with, you know, right now. So there's a lot of evolution in there, and obviously at the federal level, there is a huge wind shift about to happen. Uh, we we do have you know a new administration coming in, and it will be very very interesting to see how that impacts. The regulatory environment that we that we all work in. On the other hand, when we talk about what's permanent, is the need for human interaction. People are really uh, getting a little, you know, fed up with Zoom or or, or uh, stressed out about Zoom and WebEx meetings. And and there's just something to be said for sitting across the table from coworkers and from business partners in order to collaborate. And so I think we have. Well, I know that we have examples of legislation and regulation that really kind of bollocks up because traditional hearings either didn't happen or when they happened virtually, a well-meaning drafter heard something wrong and then drafted it wrong. And we have a situation in Indiana specifically like that where we're not really sure that that's what was intended, but we, we ended up with a, a piece of, of permanent legislation. This wasn't even uh, an executive order or something temporary. This was the legislature acted on regular legislation, and and made some changes that require a, a total redraw of of the documents. You know, and so now there's a, play, uh, a process in place to try and get that fixed in the next legislative session, and then we'll all have to revert back to what, you know, it used to be. So the need for human interaction and in getting together, you know, WebEx and Zoom are are great tools in their place, but there's, there's a spot for human interaction. And I think that that's a permanent condition of, of human uh, race. Uh, you know, another thing that I see in terms of this evolution, uh, and, and maybe it's permanently evolving, you know, California is still working through what they want their consumer privacy guidelines to look like with you know, a couple of passes at the law and, and a statewide referendum. And then other states are looking at what California is doing. Congress is looking at what California is doing. And I I think that the mortgage industry needs to pay really, really careful attention to privacy issues. Because even if, like Simplify, you believe that you fall under the service provider exemption, it will have an impact on our industry. And I think that when we look at the scrutiny, that social media and and, and big tech are are being confronted with. You know, when you're on social media, people are more or less willing to hand over their private information. And maybe that's because they don't realize that that that's what they're doing uh, in a Facebook transaction. But how many people do you know, and especially first-time homebuyers, how many first you know, how many people do you know are really happy about the amount of personal information that we have to hand over to get a mortgage? Uh, and so I think if we don't look at the scrutiny that Google and Facebook are enduring, and if we don't think that that Scrutiny will be directed at us someday soon. Then I think we underestimate the regulatory risk that we face as an industry. So I think that you know some, some things that are evolving, and some things that are the same, uh, and some things that will be changing permanently. You know, over the next couple of years.
1: That's a lot to absorb in our industry. Uh, <laughs> there, things are just there is no going back to normal, right? Um, so how should lenders think about compliance now? As they're absorbing all of this, it seems like there are some broader considerations, given the impact from COVID-19. You know, Mm -hmm. things have definitely changed because of that. Has this pushed lenders to think differently now?
0: I, I think so and i think that there's a whole new aspect to compliance if you will that the industry is just beginning to think about and you know i think that there is a health and safety uh, aspect of compliance that we've never had to think about before and i think so across the verticals in this industry we need to be thinking about what do we do and and why do we do it uh, and not just we've always done it that way. You know we, we we've got to be thinking about like I said health and safety along with financial, legal, and technical compliance. Are are we putting our employees or or, or our vendors at risk because we said that this part of the process? has to be built in person. Maybe you're comfortable with meeting in person, but is your supplier comfortable meeting in person? And what about your customer? Uh, are, are, are they comfortable meeting in person? And so what was you know part of the process that everybody in the process was willing to consider a nuisance yesterday? The fact that we all have to get together at some settlement agent's office and sit around the table and sign a bunch of papers and pass a bunch of papers around, that was a nuisance uh, in February it might be a health exposure risk and maybe a lawsuit tomorrow. I think there's this whole new health and safety compliance aspect to our financial, legal, and technical compliance uh, considerations that the industry is just beginning to deal with. But I don't. I think it can't be a one-size-fits-all solution either. I think we, we tend to look for those easy solutions. I mean, even think about working from home. It's great, right? Well, is if your kids are grown and out of the house. Uh, But what about families with young kids, you know, and the schools closed, Uh, you know, work from home is a nightmare for them. So there's a temptation to look at a a small, you know, demographic and and make large decisions uh, based on a small demographic. And I think we've got to, be looking at our compliance you know in a more micro level in in some ways. So I, I think the point is that we've got to think about folks with different experiences, people with different needs and an approach that our our compliance and our thinking about compliance more broadly. I think that goes for employees as well as customers. I uh, and and so that's just a whole you know an impact that I think COVID has had on the industry obviously you know from our point of view i you know i see things like electronic recording electronic signing uh, electronic notary uh, electronic closings as as being tools that can help us address those issues uh, and yet it's it's not necessarily a one size fits all you know approach to things so i think we we've got to think broadly but be aware that you know, COVID has, has changed some things. And we know, one of the other groups that I work with, the Property Records Industry Association, the theme for their conference coming up is uh, business as unusual. (laughs) 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 Because it's just, business is going to be, the new normal is not going to be normal. (laughs) And and, and so we've got to be thinking along those lines.
1: Right, right. So, Apparently, there was an election recently. Um, Yeah. (laughs) If you were talking to a lender today about the compliance and regulatory environment, what do you think they should expect in the short term and potentially longer term? especially with this new new administration coming in? Are there changes ahead and what should they focus on?
0: We are recording this on December 3rd, uh, two days after the adverse market fee has been uh, implemented for refis. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts refi volume and, and not just refi volume, but the, the repercussions of that on staffing and you know various aspects of the business that are volume sensitive. Uh, I think that with this new administration, I can remember, it was funny, I remember four years ago about this time, getting a call from a lobbyist on Capitol Hill where, oh my goodness, everybody was planning for one particular administration. Uh, and we ended up with a different administration and we were scrambling four years ago to adapt to oh my goodness, uh, w- what's going to happen now? And here we are four years later in the same fire drill. It, not that so much that I think that it was as much of a surprise in, in 2020 as it was an unknown. And and now we have a different administration coming in. And I just don't think that anybody realistically thinks that the folks in a Biden administration will have any problem with increasing federal spending. And, and how will that impact the broader economy? How will that impact mortgage rates as the federal government uh, wraps up spending and and ramps up you know some of the taxes uh, and regulation that, that Joe Biden has talked about uh, on the campaign trail? How will that impact the broader economy? How will that impact the mortgage industry? For lenders specifically, there's going to be a new director at the CFPB. And I think that they're going to think a whole lot more like Richard Cordray used to think <laughs> than how Catherine Graniger or Mick Mulvaney uh, was thinking about how the CFPB does it's, you know, tasks. And over the last four years, one of the things that I said was, asked people was, what happened to those punitive TRID fines? Did they go away? Were they repealed by Congress? Nope. So uh, your folks in your risk department better get ready. Uh, I mean, I hope that we learned something from our first go-around on TRID, where the industry's response to to the TRID regulations eight years ago was to staff up. When I think we should have teched up, we, we threw people at the problem and margins got squeezed. Every month, it seemed like we turned around, there was a new article talking about how much smaller the margins in the mortgage industry were, uh, and how much tighter things were. We had people with lenders uh, in community banks and, you know, in credit unions leaving the lending business because of of the regulations there. So I hope that this time, when we look at a new administration and a renewed interest and scrutiny on large lenders from the CFPB, that we look at our manufacturing process and figure out how to let technology do what technology does well. Uh, and let humans do what humans are good at, as opposed to just throwing a lot of people at a problem and hoping that we can get through, you know, the next four to eight years. So yeah, I, I hope that is something that that lenders are thinking about. I would really urge them to think about. Trid concerns of several years ago, I think are are back, and that we've got to have to deal with those. There's this little thing called called forbearance. If Congress doesn't act during the lame duck session, which I'm really encouraged to hear that there seems to be some consensus growing, but if if we don't come to a consensus, what happens on December 31st? And, And of course, that's a rolling problem, depending on when a borrower applied for forbearance but how do servicers prepare to meet their legal and contractual obligations? And lenders, are you talking with your servicers about those obligations? It's not a matter of just there's a day on the you know, calendar and there's, there's a clear cut, we know what this is gonna be you know before and we know what it's gonna be after. As I talk to servicers, there's a lot of questions about when can they start to proceed? What part of the notice of somebody being in default constitutes the beginning of a foreclosure? And would we be in violation of you know the current forbearance rules. What 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 are our buyback exposures? Even on those loans that Fannie and Freddie have been willing to purchase, and uh, as as we get through this forbearance period, we we just don't know what the rules are. And so that's that's another thing that I think we w- we got to really be thinking about in this. You know, as we turn the page and move into twenty twenty one, and then you know, Simplify is interesting because our all of these issues are kind of you know high level, big policy, big impact kind of issues. But Simplifile's legacy is rooted in state and local requirements, like notary. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, and so we've seen a lot of executive orders around the idea of how we do notary in the various states. And so we've got 27 states that have permanent remote online notary legislation passed, but there's probably only about five or six of those states that actually have their program figured out and where you can actually become a remote notary and actually do that work. What about the other states? Will will their legislatures codify remote notary permanently in the state statutes, or will they just go back to what they had before? We're even seeing uh, examples of proposed legislation when it comes to notary that is really pretty bad, uh, and and that the industry, you know, folks who, who deal with notary on a day-in and day-out basis, we, we look at that and go, wow, that's a really terrible way to do notary, uh, but it's making its way into legislative drafts, and so some of those bills are starting to be pre-filed even now. Uh, are we watching what the pre-filings are? Are we watching what the, you know, proposals are at the state level, and are we comfortable with it? Are we prepared to go in and, and point out the difficulties or the, or the problems with some of these proposals? And there's the, the Federal Secure Act, which was a federal RON bill, remote notary bill, that you know, tried to address some of it. To be honest, I just don't see notary being a really high priority for either caucus in either house of the uh, in either chamber of, of our federal legislature. So even though there's bipartisan support for the SECURE Act, and I think that it would be helpful, the likelihood that it moves anytime in in the next 60 to 90 days is you know, is is fairly slim. I just think as we're looking ahead, there are a lot of issues, and there's just a lot of uncertainty and unknown right now. And so, it's time to actually get engaged and and, and be looking at and and starting to think about how do we address these issues and how do we position ourselves in our products to uh, address the shift that is about ready to take place.
1: It seems like there's a lot of opportunity for us to to shift. It doesn't seem like all of this is being the environment that we're in is not going to go away quickly. There's still there's there's longer term impacts of what has happened now. And so it looks like there's just there's opportunity and you mentioned earlier about throwing technology at it instead of more resources. So there's definitely opportunity for lenders to embrace
0: that concept. I really think so. And it's it's the age old problem in the mortgage industry when when times are good we're so busy with production that we can't afford to improve our process. Uh, and then when, when times are bad and we have time to improve our process, we don't have the resources, the, the financial resources to improve our processes. And I, I think we've got to be careful about not getting caught up in in that you know circle again. You know, and I think the smart lenders and the smart service providers are the folks who take this opportunity right now and you know get ready to break out of how we've always done it in the past and figure out think about health and safety compliance what's the reason why we do this thing one of the, one of the interesting things that came out of the early uh, talks at the at the CFPB was they did an analysis of closing packages and and all of the documentation in, in closing packages because they wanted to reduce the amount of paper that went into a, a closing transaction. But they found that very, very few of those documents did they actually have control over and that, in fact, perhaps the largest percentage of documentation in a closing package was actually lender-specific and their legal department requirement. And so, you know, now is an opportunity to take a look at that and review, is this really necessary and is this the most efficient way of doing it? So I think that there are a lot of opportunities to, you know, apply technology, to automate, and to get smarter about what we do rather than just the proverbial working harder with more people at what we do.
1: Right. Exactly. All right. This was great. Great information. But before we wrap up today, I want to have some fun with some rapid fire questions for you. Not Uh-oh. related, not related to the regulatory <laughs> environment or the mortgage industry. Okay. And we've all, we've all been home a lot. Mm. And maybe doing things a little differently than maybe we have before. So what item have you purchased during the pandemic that you'd never thought you would ever need besides toilet paper and an abundance of paper towels?
0: Oh, let me see here. Uh, well, um, my my wife bought a juicer, and so I'm, I'm I'm drinking a lot of juice, and I didn't know that I needed that. But and and the funny thing about like a juicer is, I looked at it and I said, "Well, wait a minute, oh, you're taking all of the fiber out of all these wonderful fruits and vegetables." So I've actually been working on ways to take the the the, the fiber that she juices out of <laughs> the the fruits and vegetables, and and do something uh, with it, like turning it into juicer a post juicer potato pancake um you know but with beet well, roots and and carrots and things like that so we we're now proud owners of a juicer that i didn't know that i needed before the pandemic
1: <laughs> there you go what has been your favorite
0: binge watch oh my goodness oh i'm almost afraid to uh, admit this Uh, it's kind of an over the top comedy on netflix uh shits creek um which is a <laughs> <laughs> good one the, yeah I mean it's it's we got started on that because our kids told us about it um and yeah, we've you know binge watched that on a couple of weekends uh, and it's just uh, you know i and, and I think maybe appropriate for the the, the pandemic and the, and the with all the heavy news that we're exposed to right uh, maybe maybe that's why a comedy just seemed like the way to go <laughs>
1: right. yeah um it's it's one of my favorites too I admit it. <laughs> okay, one more. any new games or hobbies that you've picked up? Yeah, well, you know and I've
0: actually I've gotten back into bicycling. Oh, I you know used to do that and and kind of got away from it because you get busy with life, but now I'm back to regularly riding 15 to 20 miles and and on you know Sunday afternoons I can sometimes do 40 miles. Uh, my, my son-in-law and I they they were just over a course for for Thanksgiving and we're planning a bike packing trip for sometime next summer. So oh, yeah I've gotten
1: back into bicycling. That's great. Well, that wraps up my rapid fire questions. I want to thank you for joining me today, Mark, and I look forward to continuing to work with you.
0: I am looking forward to it, too, and I'm looking forward to how we can help out the industry as this new ICE mortgage technology entity grows and matures. Really looking forward to working together.
1: It's very exciting. So this wraps up this episode of Ellie Mae Open House. Thanks for listening. And we hope everyone listening out there stays healthy and safe. Goodbye for now. Until next time.